Uh, you're not against this typing, are you? We're, uh, yeah, we're typing this. Uh, we're on the bottom paragraph. <coughs> Essentially, what we learned last week uh, was, as the title of last week's tape is, The Path That Man Chooses to Learn By. In other words, there are many different forms by which man can learn, and very often man establishes for himself the particular circumstances that will then teach man uh, depending upon his attitude and the ways that he wants to learn. Uh, for instance, if a person doesn't want to trust a certain decision and would prefer trying, so very often the way that God's conduct would work is that God will stand back and say, it would be better for you to trust than not to try all of the dead-end paths and so on and so forth, but if that's the only way that you're willing to uh, to grapple with the, with the final truths, so then God uh, says that that's, that is ultimately the only way because you've determined that for yourself and therefore I will stand back, allow you to make the experimentation that you're so determined to make and sometimes it's a very long path that man takes in that experimentation until he comes up with that final result. As we pointed out last week, we are never guaranteed when we take those long paths of experimentation. We don't necessarily, we can't always guarantee the result. Uh, we sometimes can become so involved in the paths of experimentation, in the paths of experimentation, that uh, we never get out of them. If we are lucky, we pick up the various communications, messages, symbols, and different things that the experimentation shows us, and we eventually get back to the place that we didn't want to accept to begin with. And this is what we were talking about last week. For further details of this, or if this sounds very coarse, rough, and uh, so on and so forth, there it's, it's all available. Um, <laughs> what we'd like to do this evening is being that the one path of not believing anything, testing everything, experimentation, is is one way of going, is there another way of going? And essentially what Rav Meshachayim Litzatah says in terms of spiritual development, in terms of spiritual growth, which sometimes can have a lot of uh, directives to it that are not appreciated by man and seem to be very restrictive to, to man's behavior and man's lifestyle, there is another path. And that other path, as we're going to deal with it this evening, is, as Lozado is going to develop the concept, it is the, the path of trust, provisional trust, in a system that one doesn't necessarily comprehend yet, but a provisional trust that allows us to then live a lifestyle without necessarily understanding without necessarily understanding the significance or the import or the direction. Now, what Rav Moshe Chaim Litzata introduces is the, the concept of provisional trust, where a person doesn't, uh, can't accept or doesn't understand the logic that's behind a particular directive, a particular system, a particular behavior, and goes into the behavior and lives the lifestyle based on a measure of trust 
in the one that was the author of that lifestyle. In our particular case, the Torah, the mitzvahs, that God gives us without necessarily appreciating uh, why it's all good uh, in terms of the positive things that we have to do and the negative things that we have to stay away from. Now, just before we get into the discussion about trust being that bridge of where I am to where I'm getting to, to allow a form of learning that will come through the lifestyle itself as opposed to all kinds of variations and experiments to the essential lifestyle, Rav Moshe Chaim Litzata points out something which is very interesting. Rav Moshe Chaim Litzata points out that no matter who we are, no matter who we are, we can be the, the least educated individuals in the world or the most educated individuals in the world. People with the least spiritual connection or with the most spiritual connection. Virtually everyone at a particular point in spiritual growth requires a bridge which is called the bridge of trust. In other words, the concept of having to trust and um, not ha- being able to figure out everything before moving into it is not something that is the the uh, the condition of the nitwit or the halfwit. But if one is extremely bright or one is very, as on the Californian scene it would be called, spiritually channeled, it doesn't make a difference. No matter where we're coming from, bright or not, oriented or not, in a spiritual way, each and every one of us has a certain measure to reach that cannot be reached without a degree of trust. And this is what Rav Moshe Chaim Litzata is going to discuss. Rav Moshe Chaim Litzata, a case in point, Rav Moshe Chaim Litzata is going to take first man, Adam Arishan. And just before we open and we learn the paragraph, let's discuss who first man was. Right? First man is described in, in all of our Talmudic literature based upon the Chumash, the hints in the Chumash, as an individual of tremendous spiritual stature. In fact, in one account that the Medrash says, the Medrash says that the radiance uh, that shone from Adam Harishon was of such greatness that there were angels that mistaken first man for God and wanted to worship first man. That's how great his spiritual stature was. And the Medrash goes on to say that when these angels wished to worship uh, first man, first man said, no, but it is all of our jobs to go and worship the true God. And that is symbolic of the supremacy that man has in being able to take everything in his world and direct it back to source, even above the power of angels. The, the unique role that man plays above everything else, including angels. There's an entire discussion about this which is totally to the side for this evening. Who is greater, man or angel? And there's a lot in our literature that seems to indicate that in terms of the potentials of how far uh, um, growth is possible, man exceeds the level of angels. And to, to, in our literature, it's, it, uh, it's indicative in, in, this, in the fact that in many spiritual situations, the angels ask God, what is the next step? And God says, 
turn to the people and find out what the people are doing, you, you'll know what the next step is in terms of a holiday and so on. But this is a discussion which is really for another time. What is an angel? What is a human being? In what ways is an angel, in fact, greater than a human being? But why is man, in fact, supreme in the, in the, in the bottom line? Why is man supreme? It's really not for now. But one way or the other, first man is described as having tremendous spiritual stature. Now, this is attributed to a number of factors. Factor number one that it's attributed to is that man was, man's father and mother were God. They, man's mother and father weren't uh, a generation before people, flesh and blood, people with, with strengths, people with weaknesses, but the, it was God. And the, it's described that way in our literature. Yitzir Kapav Shel HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Yitzir Kapav Shel HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Which means the very making of God's hands. Right? So that was the spiritual stature. <clears throat> that was the spiritual stature of, of man. Now, <clears throat> the spiritual stature of man seemingly would have dictated the spiritual stature of man seemingly would have dictated that man would have known everything man wouldn't make any mistakes but we know that first man made a mistake and made it relatively soon after he was born he was required, he was told, eat from anything that you want in paradise, in the Gan Eden, but do not eat from one particular tree. Right? And we know, as the story goes in the Genesis account, that it wasn't too much longer after that that he, in fact, together with his wife, ate from the tree that he was instructed not to eat from. Right? This is the story. Now, obviously, if man did do something wrong, it means that he was tempted to do something wrong, he was challenged to do something wrong, and that he wasn't totally developed beyond any kind of form of growth. The very fact that he did fail is indicative of the fact that there was a challenge. The fact that there was a challenge means that there was still an area within which he could grow by virtue of the challenge. So the notion that first man was perfect and that he had nothing to do except uh, vacation all day in, in spiritual paradise is not accurate. The very fact that he failed means that he had a challenge. If he had a challenge, a chal challenge means that there was something that still had to be accomplished. There was growth that still had to be, um, that growth that still had to be reached. Now, if that's true, the question that comes up is what could have been the challenge of first man? What could have been the challenge of first man at that tremendously high level, that tremendously high level of spiritual stature that he still had to grow, had a challenge, and in fact failed at the challenge? What was it? That's number one. What was the challenge? Question number two was, after we know what the challenge is, what ingredient could Adam Harishan have employed in order to be able to accomplish the challenge? In other words, he had a challenge, he had to grow. It's obvious by the fact that he failed, that there was something that wasn't yet accomplished. So he, he was challenged, he had to grow. What was the challenge and what, could, what should he have implemented? What was he going to use? What would be the mechanism in order to be able to accomplish it? So Rabbi Dessler says, very interestingly, that Adam Arishan's challenge, and, and we'll talk about this, 
at length this evening. Adam Mauritian's challenge was the challenge of being able to overcome ego. Now, being able to overcome ego right, takes on many different forms. For a person who's not in a spiritual vein, overcoming ego might be in terms of the ego that's supplied by being a millionaire or the ego that's supplied by being uh, Prince Charming or the ego that's supplied by many other different successes. But it's not to say that a person who is spiritually a very great person and very connected doesn't also have a challenge of ego. Quite to the contrary, sometimes people that are great have have a lot to hold themselves great for and they have a particular challenge not to take what they are in fact and use it in a detrimental way. Right? In other words, for a person who's not, who isn't really on any spiritual level and is egotistical, uh, so he's egotistical but more than anything else he's false because he's presenting a picture of something that's not. So his problem is falseness. Wake up and find out who you are. Right? But for the person who is on a spiritually high level and is egotistical, his problem isn't wake up to find out who you are. You know darn well who you are. But wake up and realize that what you are shouldn't be utilized in this way or you shouldn't develop an attitude which is an egotistical. And when you are something, to channel it correctly and not to use it in a detrimental way is a far greater challenge because it's cooking inside of you. You know the truth of who you are. Okay? And modesty never says to, to, uh, dis, uh, to argue with who you are. That, that, modesty doesn't say that. Modesty doesn't say deny who you are. Right? There's a story, I don't know if I ever shared it with you. Uh, this is a little parenthetical, but there's a lot to learn from it. There's a story in regards to modesty, in regards to Rav Moshe Feinstein, who passed away um, about a year and a half ago, who was a very great, very great Torah scholar, most probably the greatest, uh, up till a year and a half ago. And uh, he was an extremely modest man, unbelievably humble man. Um, I, I met him many times, and uh, one could sense the humbleness in every word that he said and how he talked to a person and how he, his facial expression. In every way, he was a tremendously humble person. And um, when he was coming on in age, somewhere in his 70s, um, a heart, um, a pacemaker had to be put into, into him because of his uh, coming on in years, he needed, he needed a pacemaker. He, had a, he has a son-in-law, Rabbi Tendler, who's very much involved in medical ethics and so on and so forth. And he asked his son-in-law many questions about the pacemaker, which is a relatively simple surgical procedure, and there isn't so much halacha tied to it. So his son-in-law once turned to him, he used to get call him with complicated questions because he wanted to know the medical angle before he, he answered halachically. And he's making such a big fuss over a pacemaker. So his son-in-law once had the guts to ask him and said, ask him, Ta, why are you making such a fuss over a simple surgical procedure as a pacemaker? To which he answered his son-in-law and he said the following thing. He says, I hope every day that Mashiach will come. And when Mashiach comes, the Sanhedrin, the glorious Jewish courts that we always had will be reinstituted. And I said, most probably I will be one of the members on that court. But it says that to be a member on that court, a person is not supposed to have a real physical blemish 
in his body in order to be able to serve on that court. So he was concerned if this would be considered a blemish to invalidate his being able to sit on that court. Now, there's a lot to learn from that story because, first of all, it teaches us the simple faith that they had and how much they lived with the advent of Mashiach and the hoping for Mashiach, which is a story for itself that it was so real that before going into a medical procedure one had to weigh all of the side effects and one of the side effects would be what happens if Mashiach is coming tomorrow which was a, a, a real concern but the other interesting thing is the Sanhedrin is a very prestigious court of law a very great court of law and Rav Moshe as humble as he was knew that if Mashiach would come and a Sanhedrin would be appointed that he would very likely be on it so as humble as he was he, did, he knew who he was, and he didn't shirk the responsibility of who he was. Right? At the same time, he didn't misuse what he was in a detrimental way. Right? So in any case, so, so ego is a challenge which is, is not only a challenge when we are not, but it is a challenge for what we are, and it becomes an intense challenge when we're convinced of what we are, not to use it in the wrong not to use it in the wrong ways. The Chalvas Havavis, the philosopher Ibn Pakudu, um, um, writes how he brought together some of his disciples and he says, new disciples, you worked on all of the different areas of spiritual development for the last 20, 30, 40 years, whatever have you, and his disciples said, yes, we went through the entire spiritual checklist that you gave us and we think that we've really we've really accomplished and we've really gained ground on it and then the teacher the Ibn Pakudu said to his disciples he says now that you you believe so go home and do the biggest job of all and deal with your egos this is what Ibn Pakudu said and this is uh, this is um, this is uh, something which uh, we've touched on in many different ways in terms of God's exclusiveness and uh, at other times Let's let's apply it specifically to Adam Arishan, to first man. Let's get let's cite examples to prove that this was the problem in in Adam Arishan's life. All right, let's go through an, an, a number of things. First of all, our commentaries say that what was the driving desire that first man had to eat from this particular tree? You know, he had a paradise in front of him. He could have kept himself busy eating for who knows how long without having to resort to this tree. It wasn't that he was stranded on an island someplace with nothing except this tree. So what was driving him to eat from this particular tree? So the commentaries explain, the commentaries explain that what was driving him to eat from this tree was because he knew that by eating from this tree, he would take into himself um, um, a measure of negative inclination that he would then have to fight. Now, why did he want to do that? He wanted to take a measure of negative inclination into his system because then he would be truly challenged in an internal strife and he, by conquering that internal strife, God would be even more proud of him than if he would leave all of the struggles as external struggles. From his point, he didn't feel that he was really doing anything significant because all of the negative inclination was external. It was a possibility, but it wasn't an internal struggle. And he wanted to do something that he would imbibe within his system a certain amount of negativity and then flex spiritual muscles and spiritual stamina and grow. 
And essentially what he was saying to God was, God, I know you have my best interests in mind and you want me to go along one path. Well, I want to get to the same finish line as you want me to get to, but I have a different way of doing it, a better way of doing it, a way that in the end you'll be proud of me. Let me do it. Now, this symbolically is referred to by what the negative inclination told first man. The inclination told first man that God ate from this tree and created worlds. And if you'll eat from this tree, you'll also be able to create worlds. Now, what was the inclination saying? Obviously, this is a very Kabbalistic thing and has a lot of deeper meaning which we're not going to get into because I'm not capable of it. But what does it mean on the simplest level? How are we creative? By the things that we're compelled to do or by the things that we make choices to do? By our choice, we're creative. When we have choices in front of us and we create systems of priorities and then we work internally to, to, to direct ourselves and to focus ourselves and we create the, the behaviors through our forms of choices, that is the creative ability in man. In the way that God chooses to do and is not compelled to do, and that's godly creation. Man, too, is creative in that which he chooses to do through his system of choosing and through his and all of the different systems that he goes through. So essentially what the negative inclination was telling first man was the following. You want to be creative. To be creative, you have to have more intense struggle. To have more intense struggle, you have to eat from this tree. Now, let's, let's, analyze, let's analyze that for a moment. What is really going on in Adam Mauritian's life? Now, everything that I'm sharing with you is not my own theory, but it's, it comes from the essays of Rabbi Dessler, trying to understand the flaw in first, in first man's conduct. So Rabbi Dessler says a very interesting thing, and this is something which needs so much thinking, in particular when people are growing spiritually, in particular when people are growing spiritually, and that is the following. Rabbi Dessler says that what was really going on here? So Rabbi Dessler says on the simplest level, call a spade a spade, what was going on here was two words, ego gratification. Now, ego gratification can be such a deep thing and such a confusing thing that one can believe that what one's doing is really religious and orthodox and I'm a saint and the thing that I want to do is a mitzvah while all it really is is nothing more than a fancy religious dressing to what when we take the clothes off it all it is is the naked ego gratification that's all it is right? so in other words Adamarishan on all conscious levels possibly and on all rational levels was saying to Hashem I want you to be proud of me I want to really grow I don't want anybody's help I have to grow on my own I got to pull myself up over my own bootstraps Sadik. but underneath all of it it was nothing more than another form of ego gratification. Now, that's a very important thing which I'm going to get back to later and I invite questions on it. I encourage questions on it. Uh, when a person is suffering from a particular personality trait, take for instance ego gratification, the fact that a person all of a sudden one day decides that he wants to be more traditional or he wants to be more Jewish doesn't mean that the problems of ego gratification disappear. What usually happens is that instead of getting his ego gratification from killing somebody in business, now he'll get his ego gratification from a mitzvah. In other words, what he will do is he will have the same 
same ugly trait, a same weakness in personality. And what he does is he gives it a new dressing. He takes he takes a mitzvah or he takes something else that he's doing within a religious form and underneath it all really lies the old ego gratification. The same old thing from the past. And this is why, okay, and this is a real topic, a serious topic for discussion later on, how when we move into Yiddishkeit that we ensure that we're not just transforming um, a new set of rules to, to the same old personality and that we're not directing ourselves towards personality growth. I had this parenthetically, you know, you're stuck with me because with, with all of my parentheticals because <laughs> all of the people that come to me give me so many different ideas. I had a number of years ago in a weekend program a woman who was an, a sincere convert to Judaism and was having, after making a sincere commitment to Judaism, awful problems with Judaism. Why? So I'll give you a couple of examples. She came to me and she said, I missed uh, lighting Shabbos candles on time. I missed lighting Shabbos candles on time. Rabbi, does that mean that I am damned forever in hell? Um, uh, I didn't do this particular mitzvah correct. Can I ever be saved? and so on and so forth. Now, what was going on, I just listened for a couple of moments and it became very clear to me that essentially what happened over here was that she had taken all of the the Christian doctrine and Christian philosophy and instead of whatever the mitzvahs are in Christian doctrine, if there are, it took those out and put others in their place but with the whole attitude of, of, of Christian doctrine. doesn't work. You know, that's the putting a, wrong, a pair of shoes on the wrong feet. You know, it, that doesn't work like that. And essentially, that's, a, that's an example in terms of a convert. But essentially, we do the same kind of things. Uh, we put on a new set of clothes on the same body that wasn't cleaned yet, that wasn't washed yet. What value does a new set of clothes have on, on a body that wasn't cleaned yet? It doesn't have any value. The person is still as dirty as he was before. And... Essentially, sorry for the simplicity of the, or the coarseness of the example, but, but that's essentially, and that's a, that's something that needs a lot of investigation on, on a person's part. Let me give you another example. God said to first man, don't eat from the tree. God never said to first man, don't touch the tree. When first man went over to his wife to communicate what the command was, a first man said to his wife, don't eat from the tree and don't touch the tree because if you do either one, you're going to die. Right? Now, the Talmud comes along and the Talmud says that from this we learn we are not allowed to add on to the mitzvahs that God gives us. We're supposed to do them the way God says, not detract from them, obviously, and not to add on. Now, not to detract from them, we all understand we can't make it less than it is. But what's so terrible if we make it more than it is? Furthermore, we know that there is an attitude of making a fence around certain things so that we shouldn't fall in, right? So why can't we say that what the first man was doing over here was he was making a fence around the tree so that he shouldn't even come close to the tree? But this is not the way the Talmud defines it. The Talmud says that from adding on that new thing, the whole mistake came. Why? Because you know what what Adam's wife did, Chava? She touched the tree to test if she would die. And after she touched the tree and didn't die, she said, ah, the whole thing is baloney. If I touch the tree, I won't die. If I'll eat from it, I won't die either. 
The same way this is not true, this is not true. And that all comes from the misconception of having believed that God had instructed both not to eat and not to touch. So the Talmud says from here we learn that by adding on, you, la- you land up with even less than you, than you were intended. But what's, what's behind it? So the Talmud is teaching us again the same thing. It is true that when a person's heart is in the right place and a person wants to do what he's instructed to do, sometimes he has the right to make a personal, a personal barrier, a personal gate, okay, around something because he knows his own weakness. But he cannot say that this is in the, this is what God told me to do. In my, in my particular situation, in my particular situation, I need this. Right? But we have to be very careful about what God said and what I'm doing because of a particular weakness of mine. What the Talmud is saying over here is that in the case of Adam Marishan, it didn't come because he didn't want not to make sure that he wasn't going to eat from the tree, but he had to have his ego gratification. He had to create something himself. God says, don't eat from it. Adam says, don't touch it. You know, it's, you know, on the, on the same sentence. God says, don't eat. Man says, don't touch. So we're, we're running, you know, we're running, we're running together. Right? And when that's the case, there's nothing good that comes out of it. And that's the, that, there's nothing good that comes out of it because then what essentially man is doing is man is serving himself and worshipping himself instead of trying to come close to God. Very cloaked, very confused. Man doesn't even know sometimes if he's doing it to himself. But he's actually involved in a self-worship that doesn't lead anywhere good instead of trying to do what he was told to do. Now this is Adam Arishan. This is first man. Ego gratification. Now, one has to realize, so here is a great human being. Nevertheless, he has struggles with ego. And the struggles with ego are so confusing that he can have all kinds of religious rationales. Right? So now, putting this all on the table for, for, for our anal- analyzing it correctly, what could Adam Harishan have done that would have prevented this trap that he believed to be a religious direction? If Adam Harishan would have been tapped on his, sh- uh, on his shoulder a moment before he took the first bite and asked, Adam Harishan, what are you doing, a mitzvah or an Avera? Adam Harishan would have said a mitzvah because I want to make the, the, the struggle more intense in order to be able to accomplish more. I'm doing a mitzvah. Now, how can you stop a person from doing a mitzvah? What would be the mechanism? What did Adam Harishan need? Now, if a person knows he's doing something wrong, so tell him why it's wrong and tell him what he's going to lose from doing something wrong and so on and so forth. But if man really believes he's doing a mitzvah, what can stop him? I'm doing the right thing. What are you telling me? I shouldn't do the right thing, the thing that I believe is the right thing? So the, the answer in Adam Arishan's case, as it is in many situations of spiritual growth, is that Adam Arishan, there was one ingredient that was missing. The ingredient that was missing was trust. That's the ingredient that was missing. Because Adam Arishan says, God, you prescribed for me one way of growing. I have a different way of growing. I don't believe that your way is the best way. I believe that my way is the best way. Why? Because in my mind, that's how it comes out. 
Right? So my understanding is one way. God's understanding is another way. Right? And I will therefore go the way that I understand, not the way that you understand. Now, if everything in spiritual growth is just understanding, right, then Adamarishan is right. Then he has intelligence. He figured out what was the, the most right thing for him, quote-unquote, and went ahead and did it. Right? But the point over here is that what other, the ingredient that was missing is that as great as Adamarishan is, there is a measure of trust that has to be enacted. In other words, in my understanding... See, if I understand what another person is telling me to do, then I'm not trusting him. I'm doing it because I understand it, so I'm doing it for me. I'm not doing it because, because I'm trusting him. You told me the reason, so now it's a reason for me. So I'm doing it because it's, it makes sense to me. It has nothing to do with trusting another individual. Trusting another individual in spite of my not knowing, I do it. Why? Because I trust. That's what trust is. Where I know the reason, that's not trust. It's where I don't know the reason that it's trust. So what Rav Meishachayim Litzat is going to point out is that the ingredient that was missing in Adamarishan was trust. Okay? Now, the, the trust itself is a tremendous cha- challenge. To be able to let go and to say that even though I am who I am and I am great and I am intellectual and I am understanding and I'm spiritually connected, still I must trust God. Even though everything else says the opposite direction, this is a function of heart. This is a function of spirit as opposed to every other part that, of what makes a person a person. Right? And that was what was missing. Now, if Adamarisha would have had the tr- that trust, if Adamarisha would have had that trust, so then, in spite of all of his understanding, he would not have eaten. Now, let me point out what would have happened. Okay? Is the, does Adamarisha have to live in a frustrating trust forever and ever? No. The Zohar HaKadosh says that Adamarisha wasn't supposed to eat from the tree until Shabbos. But once Shabbos would have come, Adam Arishan would have been able to partake from the tree and he would have been able to handle everything that the tree meant. So the whole restriction from eating from the tree was only till Shabbos. It was only till Shabbos. Why? Because the amount that he would have grown by the trust that he had from when he was born till Shabbos would have made him spiritually ready to be able to eat from the tree and be able to grow from the tree. In other words, the trust that he would have enacted, that he would have demanded of himself for what is in the, in the, in the figurative sense a question of hours. If I'm not mistaken, other Mauritians sinned in the tenth hour of the day. There are only 12 hours to the day and then Shabbos comes. If Adam Arisha would have hung in there, so to speak, for a couple of hours till Shabbos, then he would have been able to eat, the Zohar says, from the tree forever and ever. Why? Because he would have grown in that, in, uh, in that act of trust to have conquered the ego gratification of believing that his way is the right way. After having conquered ego gratification, nothing would have hurt Adam Arisha. He would have been able to eat from that tree as well. So he only had to wait till Shabbos. That's all he had to wait for. He only, now you can imagine from that, if he only had to wait till Shabbos, how intense the struggle, that ego gratification struggle was deep, deep down, that he couldn't wait a couple of hours till Shabbos came around. But this is what the Zohar says. All right? 
This is what the Zohar says. Now, this is the ingredient. I'll take a question, questions in a moment. So this is what the Zohar says. So it was only a question... It was only a question of trust. Now let's put it down into raw terms. The terms that bother us. The, the terms that really, you know, hurt us. What did Adam Harishan have to believe? Adam Harishan had to believe, I'm going to say it in a couple of ways, but they all bother us. Adam Harishan had to believe that what, what is God's will is good, and what is not God's will is not good. Period. No ands, ifs, or buts with all of the religious dressings and trimmings that you want. If it's not God's will, it can't be good. Finished. Now, Adam Arishan, in the tenth hour of the day, could not believe that the man couldn't contrive of some kind of a formula that would be equal or better to God. Right? In other words, Adam Arishan, let's say it, let's say it point blank, Adam Arishan believed that I can do something that is not God's will and it could also be good. Right? It could also be good. Right? That was his struggle. And he didn't understand why he wasn't right. And he, under- and he was spiritually inspired to believe that he was right and he was going to eat from it for spiritually right reasons. You get from this what, what do we draw from this? What we draw from this is that trust is um, an indispensable item. Right? If we're not spiritually oriented, then we for sure need trust to believe that it has that it has meaning. But even if we are spiritually oriented and we put and we carry the same flag that God carries, we also need trust because after everything is said and done and after all battles, spiritual battles are won, we still have to deal with one battle and that is what I perceive myself to be independent of God that perception that I can be something without God I can be something without God's advice I can be something without without the directions that God said this is one one way of saying it which is which being quite honest and quite frank most probably bothers all of us. Let's say it another way that also bothers everybody. Okay? Everybody loves a positive God. Alright? If if we went through the 60s, we know that just as long as God shows us love, peace, music, flowers, and all of the rest of it, fine. That's the God that I can look at, that's the God that I can face, that's the God I can deal with. The minute God becomes a grouch, and the minute God starts punishing and yelling and grumbling and uh, doing things that are out of order, that I, that's a God that I don't want to face. Either I don't believe it's God, or it's a part of God that I don't accept, and so on and so forth. Right? That struggle, which after everything is said and done, we all struggle with on some level. This is our struggle with the restrictions of the Torah. The concept that if you wouldn't tell me that I can't do it, I wouldn't be tempted to do it. But because you told me that I can't do it, that's precisely why I want to do it. Right? The, the, uh, Solomon the king says it very eloquently. Solomon the king says, Water is sweet if it's just stolen. If it's not stolen, it doesn't have a taste. But if it's stolen, then it's sweet. Right? But in any case... Uh, leaving that for a moment, but the concept of restriction is a concept which we, we, we don't want to accept it. And this is identical in Adam Arishan. Adam Arishan is thrown into a paradise and God says to him, everything is for you. 
everything here is for you. One thing is not for you. Alright? Even if Adam has to hear one thing is not for you, he can't accept that. One thing is not for you. There's something in the psychology of man that can't accept it. Yet give and give and give and it's all for you? Fine. The minute you say it's not for you, I, I can't accept that. Okay? I can't accept that. Now, what that really boils down to, what that really boils down on a theological level is a very, very deep thing. On a theological level, what that boils down to is that I can accept Hashem's giving, but I can't accept Hashem's taking back. I can't accept Hashem's restriction. I can't accept God's discipline. I can't accept the things that God keeps a check on. Okay? Now, we know in, in situations that are more removed from ourselves, that we're not so subjective, we know, and especially if we raise kids, even if we raise children, or if we were raised by parents, we all know, okay, we all know that, uh, there is a relationship which the Talmud talks about, which is, Yemin Mekarevis, the right hand has to bring the person close, or Smaldocha, and the left has to be able to push away. Part of, of, of chinuch, part of education, part of growth is the right hand and the left hand. The stronger hand is the right hand. So the stronger hand is to bring things close, incorporate, integ- integrate. You can have this. You, and, and the giving. The giving is symbolized by the major hand, the stronger hand. Sorry for the lefties. And the, the left hand, the left hand, which is the weaker hand, is the hand in which we have to have the ability to say no. Right? That's a big theme today. Say no. Right? Say no to this, say no to that. But there's, there's a very big truth in it. The ability to say no to something. The ability to be able to push something away. Now, in our own lives, we have difficulty with that. Accepting that on theological levels in our relationship with God, that's also a problem. Right? Now, for those problems, very often in our gut, we can't accept it. But again, if there's trust, so then the trust says, even though I can't accept it, I have to trust. See, trust wor- it works in the, areas, in the areas that are limited by my reasoning, limited by my emotions, limited by my psychology, in the areas where there's a limitation of understanding, a limitation psychologically or emotionally. That is where trust says, but even so, but even so, trust the system. All right? In other words, the trust, the concept of trust, gets rid of the ands, ifs, and buts that we are so common to make in the things that we don't like to accept. Right? Now, the, po- the point that I wanted to make with if Shabbos would have come, Adam would have been able to eat from the tree is a very, very important point. Because when we talk about trust, trust isn't the frustrating situation that I have to live for forever. It trust is up till the point that I follow through on the basis of this trust, and then there will come a moment in time where I will then appreciate that which I could never have understood without the trust. In other words, I move into it with trust, and then after living it with trust, not with understanding, but with trust, I eventually come to understand it as well. In other words, I'm not left forever and ever in a trust which is frustrating. But after I've exercised and experimented with a provisional trust, I stand back and all of a sudden the things that I would never have expected to perceive, all of a sudden I understand them. And that's the point with Adamarishan. Adamarishan, if he would have trusted, he would have been able to eat. 
because through the trust he would have been able to handle the eating that came afterwards. So when we talk about trust, it doesn't mean that forever and ever he would have had to trust. But after the trusting, he would have come to the to a new level on the virtue of that trust. And that's what symbolically meant by when the Zohar says if Adam Arishan would have trusted, he would have eventually been able to eat. What it means in our language is that if he would have trusted, he would have eventually been able to understand. In his situation, actually eat and deal with it. Uh, symbolically, it doesn't mean eating for us, but what it means for us is that the trust eventually becomes it becomes an understanding. Now, this is portrayed, and some of you might have listened to this on a tape. I can't help it if you, you, you run ahead of me. But um, this is portrayed in one particular concept. And after I say this, I'll take some questions, and then we'll go to the text, and we'll see this in, all in the text. This is portrayed by a particular mitzvah. Right? Long ago, we had a mitzvah of tzitzis. The mitzvah of tzitzis, which is these, uh, these uh, strings. Hey, Jew. Hey, Rabbi. What are all these strings? Where are mine? Uh-oh. Am I a rabbi? <laughs> oh, here they are. These strings. So there are, there are four corners. Each corner has eight strings. Long ago, the strings were a very colorful blend. There were seven white, and there was an eighth which was blue. Right? Now, the seven were, represented the bone, and the eighth one was longer. It was, col- it was dyed blue from a certain blood of a fish, which we are not totally sure of what that fish is today, though there are those that claim that they do know. And it's wound around seven times and then tied, round around eight times and tied. Uh, those of you that want to see it later, I can show it to you. So what we had is we had this white, and then we had this blue strand winding around and ties, winding around and ties. Now, what is that, what is that all supposed to mean? Right? And by the way, that particular mitzvah is given right after the sin of the spies, which was a sin of not trusting God in terms of going into the land of Israel. Okay? So the commentaries explain that white, symbolically, is, is a color which represents simplicity and acceptance based upon trust. Kabbalistically, that's what the color white is about. Um, it has a lot of other meanings spiritually white in in Yerushalayim the ones that are true inhabitants of Yerushalayim from blue on the other hand is seen as a color of investigation as the Talmud itself says study the blue of the tzitzis and you will remind yourself of the blue of the oceans the blue of the oceans will remind you of the blue of the sky the blue of the sky will eventually get you to God which is really a symbolism of, of investigating nature as a stepping stone to finding God. Okay? Now, what is the structure of the tzitzis supposed to mean? The structure of the tzitzis is supposed to say the following. The backbone of a Jew, the backbone of a Jew, after everything is said and done, has to begin with a, a foundation of the white strands, of the, of the, of the trust. A pr- uh, let it be a provisional trust but it has to start with a measure of trust based upon that measure of trust we then take the one strand of blue and begin the process of intellectual investigation now had we not had the backbone of trust we would be spinning the blue around nothing if you spin something around nothing you're left with nothing that means that not only are you not left with trust but in the end, your intellectual investigation also collapses. 
So it's not as if trust is one, uh, one commodity in spiritual development and intellectual investigation is another. The truth of the matter is that each one enhances the other. The fact that I, I have an attitude that I will trust and I'll be open-minded and I'll make the experiment and I'll look at it on a hands-on approach and try to learn it experimentally, okay, that allows me to eventually come to understand it. The fact that I can understand it eventually gives me the reason that when the next mitzvah comes around that I should trust it. What do I mean by that? If, the, if there's a good track record of things that I do understand, so then when I'll come to something that I don't understand, I'll say, I'm willing to give God the benefit of the doubt. In the last ten that, that I didn't believe, in the end I came around and I understood them. So now in this eleventh, I have a sneaky suspicion he's going to come out right again. So I'll trust. So in other words, each one accommodates the other. The fact that I have a provisional trust allows me to be open-minded enough to intellectually investigate and find out. The fact that I intellectually investigate and find out then becomes the basis to trust in the areas where I don't necessarily understand based on the track record. So each one complements the other. <coughs> now, let me just touch on one more point and then I'll open up to questions because it's an interesting point and it's a very delicate point. I want to use the sin of the spies as an example of this concept. The sin of the spies briefly stated was that they believed that you can't, we cannot go into the land of Israel. Not because it isn't great, not because it isn't wonderful, but because we are not spiritually ready for this. Listen very carefully. We are not spiritually ready for the land of Israel. And we are afraid that if we take that step up on the spiritual ladder and we're not ready for that step, we will lose our balance and fall far further than having not entertained that step that we weren't ready for. Religious. With all of the trimmings. I don't want to take the step because I'm on your side, God. I don't want to do something that's more than I can handle right now. All right? Now, was it very uh, virtuously motivated? Yes. They were afraid that they were going to fall and they would be left with less spiritually than what they were. That's terrific. Everybody should worry about those kinds of things. Mashiach would come tomorrow. Uh, so what was the mistake? So the mistake was, so some, one would be tempted to th say that the mistake was that they were wrong. They were ready for Eretz Yisrael. Wrong. That's not true. They weren't ready for Eretz Yisrael. Their calculation was 100% correct. But do you know what was missing? trust. I know that I'm not ready for it, but for some reason God told me to go ahead and do it. The fact that I would forge ahead not feeling that I'm ready for it but on the strength of I'm going to do it because God told me to do it would have generated a development of trust that would have closed the gap. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, very, it's a very peculiar thing because in other words when we make all of the calculations we're not saying that the calculations are wrong assessments of ourselves. The calculations be, can be correct assessments of ourselves. Right? But what the trust does is it gives us the ability to grow into that which I assess that I'm not yet. The fact that I can trust, I'm going to do it because I was told to do it, I'm going to do it because God has asked me to do it, that itself makes me ready for that level. That gives me a connection to that level. 
that makes a connection to that level. So the commentaries explain, yes, the Jew was right, he wasn't ready for Israel. But the trust and moving ahead, not knowing, knowing that he wasn't ready, that would have made him ready. That itself would have made him ready. Now, why do I point that out? Why, why am I getting you so involved in the sin of the spies? For one particular reason. Because very often, and this needs a good teacher in order to be able to counsel, because sometimes we're truly not ready for things. But very often, the only thing that's left to be ready for it is the trust. Now, if there are other things which are missing, all right, so then a person shouldn't take the next step yet. Shouldn't take the next step yet. All right? But if, in fact, everything else is really ready, but it's just that I'm not that mitzvah, I'm not on that level, and because I'm not on that level, I can't, I can't possibly see myself doing it or see, I let anybody else see me do it. You know, I can't pick, that's the words, I can't picture myself doing it. All right? When a person says that I'm not going to do the next thing, not because he doesn't like it, and not because he doesn't understand it, and not because he isn't inspired to do it, but he can't picture himself doing it, all right, one has to question that maybe the only thing that's missing is a, the bridge of trust to connect to it. Right? So that's why you know, this, is a very, this is a very delicate thing. Okay, and sometimes it needs uh, what uh, you'll excuse the reference to, to the news, a judgment call. Right? It very often needs a judgment call if there is in fact critical things that are missing and it's not the next step. In the case of the Jews, it was clear that it was the next step. God said, this is the next thing that you have to do. So what, there are no ands, ifs, or buts about it. But in a person's own development, there might be steps that he's not yet truly not ready for and all the trust in the world won't make him ready. But I dare say that very often my disbelief in being able to take what is the real next step very often just comes because the bridge of trust is, has not been crossed yet, or the bridge wasn't built yet, or one isn't operating with, with it. All right, I'll take questions and then we'll come back to the text. Yeah. Later. Later. And in our terms, it means that we trust God and we hold back and we don't do something that's forbidden that we're going to be able to understand. Correct. I'm not so sure I follow that. In other words, there are certain things. Let me give you an example. It might not be an example that's apropos to your particular situation, but for instance, very often, um, the person that came into my office, I think I shared this with you, and swore to me that he's, he's totally open-minded, but I will never get him to stop eating rattlesnake. <laughs> rattlesnake, by the way, is not kosher. Uh, uh, and the inability to be able to, 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 to believe that there is any legitimacy or any validity to a particular mitzvah, okay? And sure enough, with, through a process of a certain amount of experimentation and mitzvahs that weren't even related to kashras, and through a certain amount of study and a certain amount of trusting, right, today the person keeps kosher and has forsaken his rattlesnake and whatever else have you. Right? The person that doesn't believe that if he stays away, uh, doesn't work on Shabbos, that he'll ever be able to survive. 
and then six months after keeping Shabbos doesn't know if he can survive without Shabbos. Right? Now these are all situations where when I go into it, I have to go into it with a measure of trust. Right? Or, and in the end, I come to realize that it doesn't need any trust at all because I know how valuable it is in the end that it doesn't even need any trust because I'm totally connected. Stucca would be another example. Charity would be another example. The first time we put our hand into our pocket and uh, we separate ourselves from something that belongs to us, it is excruciatingly painful for some of us. But as we get more used to it, we come to realize that not only isn't it difficult to do, but we actually realize that in certain ways we are growing and becoming bigger from our ability to give and that we're not becoming smaller. Had we not trusted before we gave it, right, it would be very difficult to ever get to, to ever get to the step, to ever get to the step of giving and then to, to appreciating it. Ibn Pakudu says at the beginning of the Gate of Trust, he said that if one would want to identify the one particular element that is considered the oxygen of a person that wants to go grow spiritually, he says it's trust. Trust in oneself, trust in God, trust in mitzvot. It's the oxygen because that is what allows man to jump beyond the barrier, beyond his limitation. Right? That's what gives him the allowance of taking what is uh, what, what is almost uh, almost like an artificial leap into an area that he's not long enough to be able to take from it enough to be able to begin growing and developing it. Leia. We're uh, using Adam Arishan as a, a an example of, example of the man. At what what level was his neshama? He had a neshama. Oh, yeah, at sure. What level was his neshama at that point? Very, very great. Because it was unsplit. It was very great, and yet he did not trust. That's the question I have. Yes, because the, 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 the that's the question, but that's the answer. Because the Gemara says, Shalas chachem chatzichuva. A wise question is half the answer. In other words, what Desla points out is that as great as our neshamas are, we are still a created being. We are still in a by if nothing else, we're separated from God by the fact that He is the Creator and we are the created. The minute that there is a created as opposed to a creator, there is a tension between the two. The fact that I am the created and not the creator, or what in the morale's terms is the uh, the, the ne'etzal, okay, the one that what came from as opposed to being the one, there is a tension there that that develops into what we refer to as ego gratification. By the very nature of the Metzius Adam, by the very nature of his existence, he's constantly in battle. By his very existence, he's in battle with that. So what you're saying, even if trust is developed to a, a high point, it can vacillate. It's not a fixed... Well, to, uh, going through trust, the truth of the matter is that trust is a very intricate process. Ibn Pakudu identifies ten levels of trust. And he says, why am I identifying ten levels of trust? If a person is on the seventh and I tell him that the third level is also a level of trust, so a person might be tempted to live on the third instead of on the seventh. So even Pakuda says, I'm only saying it because every person has to find the particular level that they're on and then 
proceed to the next level. It's a very, very intricate process. You can only take one level at a time because playing the game of what you're not is not trust. Trust is an internal feeling of security. It's an internal feeling of reliance. And if I really don't feel security and I don't feel reliance, even though I go through the motions of trust, that's not trust. Right? So it's a very intricate process and you're asking a, a very uh, a question which really deserves uh, you know, a very involved answer in terms of what the process is. But you're correct. It's a, it's a very involved process. Right? What, what, uh, what, what Lazaro is po- going to point out over here is that Adam Arishan had a challenge. What was the challenge? The challenge when it comes down to the bottom level is a challenge of being a created being and not the creator. That's the challenge. Now, Lazada doesn't tell you that. I'm telling you that in the name of Dessler. What Lazada does say is that whatever his challenge was, which is what I identified for you, Lazada says that all of the brilliance in the world that Adam Arishan possessed wasn't able to conquer that. And we know that to be true. Adam Arishan Chachem Gadol Haya. These are the words of Lazada. Adam Arishan was a fabulously wise person. But when you're dealing with a personality aspect, of ego gratification, all of the wisdom in the world is not going to cure that. So what can cure a pr- that kind of a thing that creates such barriers in serving God as, instead of serving self? That, Lozado points out, the only thing that can do that is a measure of trust. Right? Let me give you, now that we're on it, let me give you one more example of this. Okay? Let me give you one more example because it really brings across a point which is a very, a very important point. Also a biblical example. Okay? The Jew left Egypt right, in haste. Right? They were thrown out after the tenth plague. Right? And then God says, when the Jew is going out of Egypt, God says that I want you to turn back and make yourselves appear as if you're lost in the desert in order to tempt the Egyptians to run after you you will take them all away in their flight for, to, to catch you to the, to, the, to the Reed Sea. Not the Red Sea, but the Reed Sea, the Yamsuf. The Red Sea is a mistake. It's the Reed Sea. And there I will perform a miracle where you will finally be finished with Egypt. You'll finally be finished with Mitzrayim. Once and for all, you'll be finished. Now, there's something very interesting here. When the Jew left Egypt, the Jew was still being pursued spiritually by the negativity of Egypt. This is proven, number one, by the fact that when they looked back and they saw the Egyptians running after them, they didn't only see the physical Egyptians running after them, but they also saw the spirit, the angel of Egypt, also pursuing them, which meant that even though they geographically left Egypt, but still their hearts were still tied to Egypt, number one. Number two, we maintained a number of times, and this is a mind-boggling concept, that an external nation cannot pose a threat to the Jewish people unless our internal condition really is a mirror of what that other nation represents. No nation can present a threat to us, even physically, unless we are suffering internally from what that nation represents. So if we're being pursued by the Egyptians, it means because we still have Egyptian in us. So it's, since we haven't conquered it internally, we are reminded of that by the external, by the external reminders. That is a mind-boggling concept that's ours to explain, but it's, it explains tons of history. But in any case, 
So God says, turn back, make yourself look like you're wandering. That will tempt the Egyptians to come after you. Okay? And then they'll be pursued to the Red Sea, and there I will make miracles for you. Now, in, for all intents and purposes, walking back and making yourself look like you're dumbfounded and you're lost in the desert is suicide. It's suicidal. Can you imagine you're, you're in an army and your general tells you, what I want you to do now is I want you to go back towards the enemy, make yourself look like, which way do I have to go? Make yourself look real dumb right, in order to engage the enemy to start up. Right? That's suicide. Okay? Now, what is that? What is that? Okay. Now, mind you, it wasn't as if the Jew had, you know, um, hawk missiles and who knows what else, and the minute they would start running after them, they turn around and, and ba- they had nothing. They went out with some Nazis. What were they going to do? Frisbee the Nazis at them? <laughs> How were they going to fight them? All right, so they had to trust God that everything would work out, even though they were engaged in what militarily was suicidal. Right? Now, that place that they turned back in what would in military terms be considered suicide, that place has a name. The name that the Chumash gives to it is Pihachiras. The Talmud says that the real name is Pihachiras, the mouth of freedom. Now there's something very, very deep in that. You know when they became free? When When they were able to turn back in an act of trust. In other words, it is conceivable that a person is so confused and so drawn and so torn in so many different directions that he can't really pull himself out. There's, he has just too much to contend with. He has too much to contend with. So what does he do? What is he supposed to get? The Jew over there, when the, with the Egyptian running after him, was going to get a Jewish learning exchange crash course in theology to believe in God? I mean, what is the crash course? that a person can receive to get out of that confusion. There's only one thing. Piacheris requires the, uh, a certain measure of trust. Right? That was one place. And then when they came to the, to the Reed Sea, right, the waters were there, and they had nowhere to go. Not to the right, and not to the left, and not behind them. They had virtually nowhere to go. Right? And in desperation, they called out to God, and God said, I don't see what the problem is, just move ahead into the water. Right? Now what's going on over here? So most of us understand that, you know, uh, God comes, you know, from, um, I forget what the name of the place is in, uh, in California. Uh, Magic Mountain. No, not Magic Mountain. <laughs> the place where they show you how they make the movies. I forgot what it's called. Oh, Universal Cities. Ah, so that God knew the exact moment that the Jew was going to go into the water, and he had already clocked it, that the, when the Jew would go into the waters, the waters would split. This is nonsense. Okay? The water is split, the water is split by virtue of the trust of the Jew that went into them. There's a chemistry between a miracle and man. And the chemistry between the miracle and man is when man is willing to give over to God and make that unequivocal statement, you're in control. I will trust you. You're in control. What you're saying is good. And it's at that moment, in other words, who made the water split? 
It wasn't that it just so work happened that as the Jew put his foot in, God made the water split. It was the Jews putting his foot into the water and trusting that if God told me to do it, that would be that would be good. Right? That's exactly what created the miracle of splitting the water. Right? So actually, the process of freedom didn't end the moment that the Jew put his foot over the Egyptian border into the desert. Geographically, maybe. But internally, in terms of true freedom, true freedom comes from trust. Now listen to that statement, because most of us resist concepts of trust because we believe that if we have to trust, we're putting us, ourselves into a mold. But in fact, we're not. We are provisionally maybe putting ourselves into a mold that we don't appreciate, but in the end, we can understand that which we were trapped and couldn't understand before. So then trust in the long run is a process towards freedom, not a process towards captivity. So in other words, in our democratic way of thinking, I don't tell me what to do and I won't do unless I understand to do, and the whole notion of trusting is one step under dictatorship. But the reality is that it's not that way. Because if trust opens up a panorama of understanding, if it opens up a function of being able to be, uh, be oneself and not operate in ways that others want me to operate that are restricting my potentials, then trust is really a process of freedom. That's why I mentioned this particular biblical example, because it, it rounds out that trust is really a process of freedom as well. Are there any more questions? We're going to really set a record today. We didn't even start the text. Yeah. This is the whole concept of Nasser Nishma. Yes. It's the concept of Nasser Nishma, correct. Yes. You said that um, trust is a function of heart and of your... Of <coughs> Isn't it really a function of the rational mind? You say, even though I don't want to do this, even though I don't understand it, I know that it's my good anyway, and I'll do it. Okay, the truth of the matter is the truth of the matter is that trust is a combination. Because trust after everything is said and done cannot be trust unless there's a reasonability, unless there's a pro probability, or if one wants to talk in the language of the day, plausibility. Right? There has to be okay, you know, I do a lot of driving, what can I do? Uh, the there, there is a reasonability to trust. If there's no reason to trust then trust is stupid. So I, obviously it's connected to intellect. Obviously it's connected to understanding. What I meant when I said that trust is connected to heart as well, what I meant by that is that it is, it is connected to intuitive connections that we have, senses that we have that something is right. Okay? I'll give you an example of this. I don't know if I ever shared it with you. Did I ever tell you the grave story? No, I never told you the grave story. Oh, it's a fabulous story. Um, let me tell you the grave story. Um, <clears throat> when we talk about trust, which is really built on belief, right? and I mentioned, I said before heart, now I'm saying it more like an intuitive sense, that I want, I want to do it for you, even though I don't understand it. I want to do it because, because I have a sense that it, it, it's the right thing to do because you told me to do it. There's emotions involved in it as well, and there's an intuitive quality as well, including the intellectual one. But let me give you an example of what I mean by the intuitive. 
Right? Let me give you an example of this. There's a story which the Talmud says, which most of us in the 20th century would think is very peculiar. Um, the, um, there's a story told about how a mother is telling one of ten children that the, she's, she's, uh, that, uh, she has to be a little bit more discreet about her promiscuous ways. She has to be more discreet about it. And she admits to her daughter that from the entire family of ten children, only one is from the natural, from the father in the house. Right? Now, that's a little bit unbelievable in today's times for other reasons, but, um, but one way or the other, little did she know that her husband heard this. Right? Her husband took sick afterwards, and on his deathbed, on his, on his deathbed, said that he wants that the estate should only go to the true son, his natural son, and not to any of the other children. And with that, he died. Now, obviously, there was a rip-roaring fight who the estate belongs to, and everybody claimed being the true son. So they went to a particular sage whose name fails me right now, and they asked what they should do. So they were instructed to go out to the cemetery, and each son should bang on the grave and ask the deceased to proclaim from the, from the world, from the next world, from the point of truth, who was the true son. So they all went out to the cemetery, they banged on the grave, and naturally there were no voices that came out of the grave, and there was no indication who the true son was. They went back to the Talmudic sage, and they said, we t- did what you instructed us to do, and there are no indications. So the Talmudic sage questioned them, and upon further investigation, uh, discovered that one of the ten did not go out to the cemetery and bang on the grave. And the Talmudic sage immediately rendered the decision that it was that child that was the true child. Now, what is the reasoning that's behind this? So the commentaries explain that though the child had no uh, biological, medical, or any other way of proving his natural connection to his father, but there was something innate in him that didn't allow him to do that disrespectful thing of banging on a grave. He couldn't bring himself to doing that. So the, when we talk about a connection to father, right, which is only a connection uh, more or less for us in this world on a biological level, if it's so innate that it can create that sensitivity, so, so much more so when, when we are created and, and the responsibility for our creation comes completely from God, and certainly in terms of our neshama, that there is deep, deep down within us an innate sense of a connection to God. It's that deep, innate sense of connection to God that needs development. It needs sophistication to development. It needs a pure environment, not a static environment to sense it. But deep, deep down, the human being feels God as his creator, as his father. It, it needs development, and that's really all of that which we do in Emuna and Bitachon eventually boils down to one thing, boils down to concretizing that hidden, intuitive sense of knowing that Hashem made me, that Hashem created me. Yet, uh, when we start out as children, ch- babies, and, and up until a certain age, right. they trust. They believe everybody, and it seems 
that society teaches one, oh, you want to survive? First of all, the moment anybody ever says, trust me, I mean, that's a joke. Everyone <laughs> says right away, I know something terrible is going to happen. So that is the kind of training we get. So we start out with this terrific trust and belief in, in others. And as we grow, doubts come in. Now, is that because of the kinds of lives we lead, or is is that sort of a natural kind of pattern? Is that something we have to fight all the time? Okay. That happens to be an excellent question. I might also say, um, n- not that this answers the question, but I want to make an observation uh, which is a very worthwhile observation and for those of you that are involved in any kind of social work or in any kind of therapy um, especially on the side of helping others um, there are intimate links between an Ill- inability or I wouldn't call it an inability but a difficulty in accepting certain very fundamental parts of Judaism that have really nothing to do on a religious basis but are carryovers of what a person has learnt to become disappointed with outside of life and, and not outside of, outside of Judaism but in life in other words in other words a point in case one of the most uh, specific points in case is, is, is the case of trust um, Another point in case, I'm going to hold off on the case of trust for a moment. I'll take a more simple one. Trust is a very complicated one. Um, a positive self-image. An individual who was abused as a child okay, will have very, very difficult time uh, adapting towards Judaism. Now, I'm not saying towards uh, a a real form of Judaism. Now, I'm not saying that it's not possible, and I've seen it happen many, many times. But the person who helps such an individual grow into Judaism has to drop the issue of Judaism provisionally and deal with the concepts of a positive self-image first. Why? Because a person that walks into Judaism with a negative self-image will carry those attitudes in terms of what they can and cannot accomplish in terms of Judaism as well. There's no such thing as saying that a person can grow up psychologically a misfit and be healthy in a Jewish way. That's, That's impossible. Judaism is a way of life it's a way of blessing, and therefore it has, to, it has to make contact with a person who is alive, a person who is beating with, with healthy life. And if there's a problem with self-image, a positive self-image, that has to be dealt with first. Not last, but first. It is quite true that there are certain practices in Judaism that actually nurture or enhance a positive self-concept. That's true. But one has to recognize and separate the issues. Now, trust happens to be another, another such form. What I can say to, to the people that have been awfully disappointed by people that they were engaged to trust and didn't come through, and what is this supposed to mean, and how can I tackle coming into Judaism having been disillusioned and not wanting to trust anybody, I would say it in the following way. I would say it in the following way, and it has to be it has to be heard uh, very carefully. 
the same way that we grow from positive experience, sometimes we grow equally or more from negative experiences. Right? Um, there are many that can testify, and I'm not going to start telling you stories, about how people can grow from negative experience. Right? I, I'm not going to support it with stories right now, but the fact that a person goes through disillusionment and disappointment in any one particular area can become, it's not guaranteed that it will become, but it can become um, a motivation for a direction which is more positive. And I'm going to use the case of trust as a, a, point in, a case in point. One of the greatest uh, problems in trusting God is, believe it or not, one of the biggest problems is because we establish all many other sources that we trust. If it's our boss, if it's our intelligence, if it's our know-how, we establish a whole group of things in our world that we trust. Even the person that has been disappointed in all of the people that he's trusted also trusts themselves or an immediate close relative or a very small circle. Now, what do I mean when I say one of the biggest challenges to trusting God is that we trust others? What I mean by that is the following. as Very often, as long as we can hang on to different individuals that we might be able to trust and not have to trust to God and not trust God, we sometimes prefer doing that because we feel that we're more in control. In other words, uh, let's say it's my boss. I trust my boss. I've been working there for 15 years. Every year he gives me an instant raise of 10%. I trust him. Right? Now, uh, the notion of not trusting him and only trusting God and therefore going to shul on Rosh Hashanah and praying that I'll have a job next year is foreign to me. Why? Because going to God means that I'm actually not in control. I have to petition God for it. Who knows if I can convince him or not convince him. I don't have control. But my boss, sure I have control. I'll take him to the golf course every second week. I'll send him a greeting card. I'll, I'll, I'll lick. And I'll do everything that's necessary to do. But thank God, I'm at least in control of, this, of that which nurtures me. So our tendency is that we don't want to trust God amongst other reasons. We might have gripes, we might have arguments with God. I recognize that there are other reasons why we, don't, we have difficulty in trusting. But one of them is the bottom line because God is an admission that He's in control and not me. And anybody else that I trust, I have a belief of a certain measure of control to create that trust. Right? Now, when I say that from a negative experience a person can learn, what I mean is the following. When a person goes through life and those that should have come through don't come through, what a person is actually being, what is actually being done to a person is a person is being told that, that the human being is fickle. The human being is whimsical. The human being has weakness to him. And that that is not an appropriate place to trust and that one should look for something which is qualitatively a higher form of trust. In other words, if we wouldn't be disappointed with all of the people that we trust, 
right? It would sometimes be, why should I have to trust God? I have everything set up. I've got four bank accounts, three undisclosed Swiss accounts, and so on and so forth. What do I need to trust for? But sometimes, it's, I don't say it's the only way that we come to trust God, but sometimes it's precisely the disappointment in every other area that makes the person turn to God and say, God, everything else has failed for me. I can only trust you. Right? Do, do you follow what I'm saying? Now, that's, there, there are major spiritual leaps that are involved in there, but usually the person that has gone through suffering because of the disillusionment of trust or very often is spiritually purified to ascend to that kind of a level of trust. The person that has gone through life with control and cocksure of himself is not even prepared to trust God on a spiritual level and is not pure enough to trust God on a spiritual level. But the person that has suffered and has been disillusioned by man has the purity. And from a historical perspective, has the purity to be able to allow himself, the humbleness to allow himself to trust God. Now, from a historical perspective, this is also true. Because from a historical perspective, one of the descriptions of the times of Mashiach is that the Jewish people will try every option in the world. And when every nation will turn their back on us, we will realize that there is only one last place to turn. And the way the Talmud says it is, Ein lanu ein we have nobody else to lean upon except God. And sometimes that precisely is a learning method. We'll go to the United States and we'll rely on the United States. We'll rely on England, we'll rely on France. There will come a point in time, now I'm not becoming a Gene Dixon, but the Gemara says that there will come a point in time that after having been disillusioned by false expectations from wherever you are, from quote-unquote our friends, this will rattle us to realizing that we are being pushed in one direction. Trust the one that, that you can trust. Do you follow what I'm saying? Now that's not, that's not the beginning, the, in the, mini, the, the middle and the end of the whole formula of trusting God. But if one wants to, so to speak, turn around the negative effect of always having been let down in trust, the claim that since I've been let down so many times I can't trust God, there is a flip side to that. The flip side to that is that in all of the situations that I wasn't able to trust, there was always a weakness that, that destroyed the trust. It wasn't because trust is, is uh, in, in, uh, one of those fixed things and it always exists. It's as strong as the person is. If there's a weakness in a person, there's a weakness in the, the sense of trust that I can have. In every case that I was disillusioned, it wasn't because there is no such thing as trust. It's because there was a weakness that undermined it. The person was weak. He was selfish. He was jealous. He was arrogant. Whatever he was. Right? If we can find a God that's not weak, jealous, arrogant, or anything else that we found in all the others, there's more reasonability to try a, a, a relationship of trust in that direction. All right. Let it be said that we set a record of not studying the text. <laughs> we'll stop here. <coughs>